Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the life of Jacob, and here James Jordan is going to be at the end of Genesis chapter 49 and the beginning of Genesis chapter 50, discussing the embalming of Jacob. We really hope that you are encouraged and sharpened by this time of teaching, and here is James Jordan discussing Genesis chapters 49 and 50 in the life of Jacob. We left off last week in Genesis 49, and we had come to the end of the formal blessings of the tribes by Jacob. And we'll start reading in verse 28 just to get going and read to chapter 50, verse 1, which seems to work together as a section. All these are the tribes of Israel, twelve, and this is what their father spoke to them. He blessed them according to what belonged to each as blessing he blessed them. And he commanded them, saying to them, I am now about to be gathered to my kinspeople. Bury me by my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, at the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which faces Mamre in the land of Canaan. Abraham had acquired that field from Ephron the Hittite as a burial holding. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife, and there they buried Yitzchak and Rivkah his wife, and there I buried Leah, an acquisition, the field and the cave that is in it from the sons of Het. And when Yaakov had finished commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet onto the bed and expired, and was gathered to his kinspeople. And Yosef flung himself on his father's face, he wept over him, and kissed him. The story really seems to go on from there, but that seems also to make a nice conclusion to the particular passage. It's kind of a hinge statement there at the beginning of chapter 50. Well, starting in verses 29 to 32, Jacob says that he wants them to bury him in a field of the Hittites. The forefathers had been buried in this field of the Hittites. And there is, of course, a stress here on Hittites and the land of Canaan in the passage is repeated more than it would need to be and in a sense it doesn't need to be repeated at all we already know from the book of Genesis where this place is and yet we keep being told it we'll be told it again in the next chapter and that gives us some indication as to why we're being told it in death the patriarchs were wanderers no longer I say here in death they occupy the promised land the land of Canaan And we'll see in the next chapter that when Jacob is sent back to be buried, the language used is to ascend or to go up. And they are going up into heaven, so to speak, into their inheritance in death. And that's particularly the case with Jacob. But they're occupying the land, the land that they were wandering in in life, they occupy in death. So the the promise is inherited on the other side of death, which is still true for us. The fullness of God's promises to us, we only get after we die. We are still, to an extent, wandering in this world. The New Covenant has a whole lot more than the Old Covenant had, but we're still in the flesh, we're still in a fallen world, and it's when we die and go to heaven that 
we're free from those limitations, and when we're resurrected at the end of time, that we're given the fullness of what we're promised. So the principle is the same. There's an inheritance that comes in death, and that's what's pointed to here. That's why this is stressed so much. They do inherit the land after they die. Abraham had acquired this small piece of land as first fruits of the land back in chapter 23. The Hittites tried to give it to him, and Abraham says, I don't want to receive it as a gift. I know that you love me and you want to give it to me as a gift, but I want to pay for it because it needs to come from God to me, and God has given me money, and I will use the money God gave me to pay for it rather than receive it as a gift from you. Even though I love you guys and you're believers, it's not the right way. So he had bought it from Ephraim the Hittite, one of his converts. Another point I've got down here is it is stressed that Rebekah and Leah are both buried here. And of course, we've been over this before. Rebekah is the great evil woman. And supposedly it's very significant that her death is never recorded in the book of Genesis. And I imagine it is significant, but I don't think it's significant in showing that she was so wicked that God didn't care to record her death. It does say that she was buried right here in the special heavenly place. And so they were buried on holy ground. They're thus in the kingdom of God. But Rachel wasn't buried there. And that's what's interesting. And I think that the fact that Rachel was not buried there, well, you get the same thing with her. Rachel was evil. She was a troublemaker. And she stole those household gods because she was an idolater. And when she died, she was full of bitterness, saying, Son of my sorrow, as she named Benjamin, and all the rest. And she's in hell. I've heard that. I don't think so. Not at all. The fact that she's not buried in this place that's already owned is a sign that the sons of Jacob need to conquer the land. Her burial place will eventually be in the land of promise, but it's not yet. And I think that Rachel being outside of it is part of the eschatology of the passage. She still needs to be brought into the sphere of ownership by Yahweh's people. And so the fact that her burial is just an obvious absence here. Why isn't Rachel the more important wife? Why isn't she mentioned? Well, it's because the sons still have to take care of that. It remains to be done. Not that I think they dug her up and put her in the cave of Mamre, but rather that once the whole land is taken over and becomes their land, then she is included in it. So those are some observations on the text here, and I think why the things are stressed the way they are. This was a Canaanite piece of land which was acquired from the Canaanites in the land of Canaan from the Hittites and that's the beginning of Israel's occupation of the land and the beginning of the new kingdom of God that expands on into now the entire earth and then the last verse and the first and the next one there's a link between these I've got it marked for you when Jacob had finished commanding his son he gathered up his feet He was gathered to his kinsmen, and Yosef, whose name is the same word, gather, or add to, flung himself on his father's face. So the commentators see these as linked, and I think there's at least something to that. Asaf gathered in Yosef, who kisses his father. And again, he's the leader. He's been called the Nazir, the leader in holy war, so to speak. 
of the tribes, and thus he concludes the event for them all. As a matter of fact, Joseph is obviously the leader in all the events that follow. It's clear that Jacob's death leaves Joseph in charge, which results in the last potential conflict with the brothers. But as we read the next section, you'll see how Joseph is left in charge and some of the things that means. We can reflect on that next week. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means. But for now, let's look at chapter 50, verses 2 to 14, which I've got... uh Jim, comment on this here in verse 33 it says when Jacob had finished commanding his sons he gathered up his feet under the head and expired the impression you get there is as soon as he finished this commanding of his sons that he died is that important yeah I think it is that he died as soon as he finished well I think what's significant is that this really is the very last thing he had to do I don't know that he anticipated dying while he was doing it but that Having done the last thing he had to do, he died. It's kind of like Jesus on the cross. And in fact, as we'll see in just a moment, Jacob is definitely anticipating Jesus in a lot of ways. And when Jesus had finished everything he did, he gave up the ghost. There's what anything left to do. Of course, Jacob doesn't do that voluntarily. But yeah, I think you're right, Harold, that it's immediately after this last will and testament, these last commands, that he dies. Because that's the last thing he had to do. In our lives, it might not be that way. You might have your last will and testament and live another five years, you know. But it didn't work that way here. And it's because his immediate death provokes an immediate crisis. How are the other brothers going to relate to Joseph now that Jacob's not there and Joseph's really in charge? This will result in changes. It does. There's a huge transfer of authority and of change in situation. What will it mean? That will come up. But first we have to bring Jacob up. And I call it the ascension of Joseph's father here for two reasons. Number one, the name Jacob never occurs here. So we would say the burial of Jacob, but the text doesn't ever say Jacob. And second of all, although it talks about burying him, what's of more interest is the fact that they keep talks about going up to the land of Canaan. And I think the idea of ascension and going up is stressed here for theological reasons. Jacob is never mentioned. He's called Joseph's father eight times. He's never called their father. Every time it's Joseph's father. Let's read it and notice these words as we go. Verses 2 to 14. Then Yosef charged his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. And the physicians embalmed Israel. Not Jacob, Israel. And there's double meaning there. The full 40 days were required for him. For thus are fulfilled the days of embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him had passed, Yosef spoke to Pharaoh's household, saying, Pray if I have found favor in your eyes. Pray speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father had me swear, saying, Here I am dying in my burial site, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you are to bury me. So now, pray, let me go up and bury my father in return. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he had you swear. So Yosef went up to bury his father. And with him went all of Pharaoh's servants, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all of Yosef's household, and his brothers, and his father's household. Only their little ones, their sheep, and their oxen did they leave behind in the land of Goshen. 
Along with him went up chariots as well, and horsemen as well. And the company was an exceedingly heavy one. And they came as far as the bramble threshing floor that is in the country across the Jordan. And there they took up a lament, an exceedingly great and heavy lamentation, and held mourning for his father for seven days. Now when the settled folk of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at bramble threshing floor, they said, This is such a heavy mourning, Avel, for Egypt. Therefore its name was called Meadow Avel of Egypt, which is across the Jordan. Thus his sons, so his sons did thus for him as he had commanded them. His sons carried him back to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah. Abraham had acquired that field as a burial holding from Ephraim the Hittite facing Mamre. Then Yosef returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father after he had buried his father. They never even says their father anywhere. So there's some stresses here that we want to take account of. And that's why I've titled it, not the ascension of Jacob or the ascension of the brother's father, but the ascension of Joseph's father. That seems to be the stress. Let me go up and bury my father. Go up and bury your father. So Joseph went up to bury his father. Burial would be of equal importance. Jacob is never named. Israel is named, but there's a double meaning there because Israel is the people as well as the individual. I think we have to say it this way, that in Genesis, there's typology that's under the surface that we can understand better now. And in Jacob's ascension, he goes to prepare a place for his sons. He goes on ahead to the place where they're going to be. They will come to Canaan 240 years later. This takes place in the year 2313. The Exodus is in 2513, and 40 years after that is 2553. And we can look at the typology just by seeing that Abraham was the father, and Jacob, at the very beginning of the story, was called the perfect man. And Jacob underwent death and resurrection three times, one with Isaac, where Isaac tries basically to kill him by taking everything away from him and then winds up blessing him afterwards, even though Jacob has to leave. Jacob undergoes death and resurrection with Laban and at Peniel. Laban tries to take everything from him, but God blesses him, and then God wrestles with him and then grants him the privilege of a new name, which is connected with resurrection. And then we've just finished studying how he undergoes death and resurrection again in connection with Joseph. His spirit died. You will bring me down to Sheol in death. Go down to Egypt that we may live and not die. When Jacob heard about Joseph, that Joseph was alive in Egypt, his spirit died. But when he saw the signs and seals of that truth, his spirit came to life again. So the whole idea of death and resurrection, of suffering, for others who are going to come in the future is all over the Jacob story. And Jacob's final death here leaves it to his sons, which we may say is the church or Israel, to carry on. He's gone, just like Jesus is gone. Jacob sent Joseph to his brothers, and Joseph went ahead of the church and now is left to guide her. Joseph would be like the Holy Spirit. And in Genesis, Abraham is like the father, Jacob is like the Son, and Joseph is like the Holy Spirit. He's the one who goes to the Gentiles. He's the one connected to the Holy Spirit. Pharaoh says, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? It's the only reference to the Holy Spirit in Genesis after the flood. So Joseph is much more like the Spirit, and he goes ahead and prepares and gathers and saves and whatnot the church or Israel. 
And then I've got down here Jacob's ascension to the land of Canaan as a prelude to the ascension of the church of Israel into that land. So there's a vague typology here because of who God is. When God acts in history, he acts in certain ways. He acts as a father bringing a son and a son sending a spirit. And this is imaged out in human life all the time in lots of different ways. But here is an example of it, and it does have a prophetic aspect to it. The stress on taking Jacob up to the land of Canaan, and all the accoutrements and the trumpets and the great witness that this has all foreshadow the fact that Israel will come up later, and it obviously connects to Jesus going in his ascension to heaven and then us following So we can now read it with these things a little bit in mind as theological canon. Verses 2 and 3. Then Joseph charged his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. The physicians embalmed Israel. A full 40 days were required for him, for thus are fulfilled the days of embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. There's a double thing going on here that has to be deliberate that... His father is embalmed, but then Israel is embalmed. Why not say embalmed Jacob? Because we don't want to just think of embalming Jacob. Jacob is the name for the man as an individual. Israel is the name for the man as an individual, but connected to the people. And the fact, of course, Israel is embalmed in Egypt. And they're going to be embalmed down there for 200 years. And then they're going to come out and be de-embalmed for a period of time. So there is a double idea here that is setting us up for the future coming out of this embalmed situation. They all are in a state of death or lower situation in Egypt, even though it's nice to be in Goshen and it'll be nice for another hundred years or so. But about a hundred years from now, things are going to change and it's going to get bad to be in Egypt. Well, I've gone down here... The word embalm seems to be slightly related to spices. I can only tell you that some of the commentators will look at the Hebrew word and they'll look over in Song of Solomon and other places where it refers to spices or fruit trees and the like, and they'll see similar sounds. Well, whether the word itself is related to it, the fact is they use these spices, and it's actually the spices that accompanied Joseph down to Egypt in the first place. And we didn't make this point then. I hadn't seen it yet, but the caravan of Ishmaelites that took Joseph down to Egypt were carrying balm and balsam and laudanum, and these are burial spices. They're used for other things, but just as Jesus was going to be embalmed with spices, and Jesus had gold, frankincense, and myrrh, an embalming spice brought to him as a baby, so when Joseph goes down to Egypt, that's the beginning of the idea of being embalmed going down into something like death, waiting for resurrection. There's a double thing here. You go down to Egypt to convert the world, that's in one direction. You go down to Egypt to be embalmed in a state of death for a while so that you can be resurrected and come back up into the land of Canaan later on. That's also there. Both aspects are there in the story. It's interesting that you've got 40 days of embalming at the beginning here, that's matched by 40 years of disembalming after the exodus from Egypt. 
It was the sin of the people that caused them to take 40 years to be disembalmed. But it was precisely getting rid of Egypt that had to happen for 40 years. They kept saying, we want to go back to Egypt. We remember the leeks and the onions and the garlics and the cucumbers. They had been embalmed in Egypt so long that that's where they wanted to be. They wanted to stay there. And it took 40 years for God to unwrap them and get the spices and wrappings off of them to where they were ready to come into the promised land. Well, it took 40 days at the beginning here to embalm Israel, 40 years to disembalm Israel. Well, I don't think that's an accident. Especially since we know from Egyptian records that embalming in Egypt took 70 or 72 days. And yet, the text here says it took 40 days and that was the custom at the time. Well, that 40 is called attention to. It doesn't say it took many days. They could have said it took 30 days. God has the number here for a reason, and it's a number that has a certain obvious meaning as we go down into Egypt to be embalmed and we come out being disembalmed. I have down here that there may be allusions back to the flood. The only other thing in Genesis that has 40 days is the 40 days that it rained as the flood started and the 40 days that the waters receded after the ark settled on Mount Ararat. You have 40 days at the beginning and the end. And it's interesting to think possible connections to Noah. Noah, at the end of the flood, he has ascended to the top of Mount Ararat and starts a new world. And at the end of these 40 days, Jacob will be taken up into Canaan and be the sign that eventually a new world will come. And at the end of the 40 years later on, Israel will ascend to Canaan and start up a new world. So there may be intended some parallels here in terms of 40 days being a time of judgment. The world had 40 days and then a period of death with the flood and then 40 days of resurrection and then the new world. We got 40 days for Israel being embalmed, a period of death in Egypt, which was pleasant for a while but then got bad, and then 40 years of coming back out. So there are parallels, and perhaps that's intended here as something to reflect upon. Then it says they wept for him for 70 days. Is this a total of 110 days? All the commentators seem to think that 70 days of mourning would include the 40 days of embalming. They point to the fact that in Numbers and Deuteronomy we're told that Israel mourned for Aaron and Moses for 30 days. So if you have 40 days of embalming and 30 more days of mourning, You've got 70 altogether. That makes a certain amount of sense. We won't know until we get to heaven and can interview some of these people to see if they embalmed for 40 days and then wept for another 70 or if this was coterminous or if this was going on at the same time. But again, why mention 70? And in Genesis, the only other 70, which is actually not even given as a number but is clear, is the 70 nations in Genesis 10. The whole point of Israel was to bring salvation to these Gentile nations, precisely those nations in Genesis 10 which fell into sin at the Tower of Babel. And immediately after that, God calls Abraham to minister to those nations. And of course, the ministry to Egypt, which governs the world of all the nations at this time, is the first and a very large fulfillment of that ministry. So... For the Egyptians to mourn over their Messiah, just to speak very loosely, for 70 days, 
would connect to the 70 nations of the world being converted and mourning over the passing away of a great biblical Christian godly man. So, again, it could so easily say they wept for him for many days instead of for 70. Uh, when you've got these key numbers come up in the text, I think you are invited, and indeed I think compelled, to reflect on why the Holy Spirit would write it this way. And it makes perfect sense. These are Gentiles. The number 70 is the number of Gentiles in this time in history. So the Gentiles weep for him, and the number calls attention to that. The author does not want us to miss the point that we're talking about Gentile conversion here. We're talking about Israel doing what Israel was supposed to do, and that is witness to the Gentiles. Well, in verses 4 to 6, Joseph asks Pharaoh for permission to go up and says he'll come back. When the days of weeping for him had passed, say 70 days are up, Joseph spoke to Pharaoh's household saying, Pray if I have found favor in your eyes. Pray speak in the ears of Pharaoh. For one thing, Joseph is still under Pharaoh's authority. He's not acting on his own. Although Joseph is a father to Pharaoh, as we saw last time, there's also this hint in the prophecy concerning Joseph or the blessing of Joseph that Pharaoh is his father. And with Jacob gone, Pharaoh is even more left behind as the one who is over Joseph now that Jacob is gone. So Joseph does not do what he wants, even though he has the signet ring. He is deferential. Of course, that's a good example for us when we deal with authorities. Also, it says when the days of weeping for him had passed, Joseph spoke to Pharaoh's household saying, I think we can assume that the Egyptians have finished weeping, but Joseph is still in mourning until the burial takes place, and you do not go into the presence of one of these oriental kings dressed in sackcloth. When Mordecai, in the book of Esther, put on sackcloth, he couldn't go to the king. He had to send Esther to go. I mean, Mordecai could have gone to the king. Mordecai was a member of the Supreme Court of the Persian Empire. He was the representative from the province beyond the river, from what the text says. He sat in the king's gate, but not in a state of mourning. You don't go into the king's presence in a state of mourning. And I don't think he went into Pharaoh's presence in a state of mourning. It would have been inappropriate. So he goes through the servants, and he asks them to communicate the message. And he says, My father had me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in my burial site that I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you are to bury me, so now pray let me go up and bury my father and return. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, but make sure you come back here. No, Pharaoh trusts Joseph. He doesn't need to say that. He says, just obey your father. This Pharaoh is just about as good a guy as you find in the Bible. He doesn't ever do anything bad. After his conversion, every time Pharaoh ever has an opportunity to say anything, it's something good. He can't wait to bless Joseph's family. Everything that is right and good, when he has an opportunity to do it, he seems to do it. So the Bible gives us an awfully positive presentation of this man there again. I think that part of the reason this information is included is to reinforce for us that these are converted people, that this ministry has been effective, that God is saving Gentiles. Later on, Israel is going to keep forgetting that. Jonah didn't want to go off to Nineveh. He's afraid God would convert him. The Jews did not go out and conduct missionary enterprises, so what did God do? He kept bringing armies in to capture them and drag them off into captivity. 
So they would. Now, how did Naaman the Syrian learn about Elisha? He had a captive Israelite girl in his household. If you won't go out and witness, then God will send armies in and capture a bunch of you and take you off, and then you witness. You One way or the other, you're going to go out and do this witnessing stuff. So this should have been a continuing lesson to Israel to show them the essence of their calling, which was to bear the truth for others. Even if you have to die. See, I think that's part of the connection here. What do you have to do in order to bring the Gentiles to salvation? You have to die. Being down in Egypt is death. It's being embalmed. If these Egyptians are going to be saved, we have to be willing to go down there and be embalmed. It's kind of like those old Moravians who used to sell themselves into slavery so that they could be near the slaves and minister to them. Pretty radical thing to do. But it's something like this here. God works it out in such a way as if these people are going to be saved, you have to be willing to die. Give certain things up, not have as many luxuries as you might have because you're giving more money or time to get this work done. Whatever. There's lots of applications of it. But here it is, a continuing message to them. You give up certain things, you go into a certain degree of death for the sake of this witness to the Gentiles, to those who are outside. Well, then in verse 7 to 9, we have a list of who went up and who didn't. I think there's kind of an implied chiasm here. Not that it's the end of the world if it's not. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went all of Pharaoh's servants, and all of Pharaoh's elders, and all of Egypt's elders, elders of the land of Egypt, and all of Joseph's household, and all of Joseph's brothers, and all of Jacob's household. And then it says, little ones and sheep and oxen they left behind. Well, there's basically six groups here. If you look at them, Pharaoh's servants and Jacob's household could very well link together those who were servants of Pharaoh, who is one leader, and those who were servants of Jacob, which is the other. And then two and five, I think, would link Pharaoh's elders. Joseph's brothers were made elders by Pharaoh. As you guys be in charge of all this stuff, obviously they're going to help him rule. And at the center, the elders of Egypt and Joseph's household, who would be elders over the land of Egypt. Joseph is in charge of all the grain and everything in Egypt. Of course, that time has ended, but he is still in charge. And so the members of his household, the Egyptian servants who are members of his household, are ruling over the land of Egypt. So the order in which this is presented seems to make a certain amount of sense. One thing's clear, all the most important people went. It says, not the little ones and the animals. The word here for translated little ones can include women in other passages. We don't need to be absurd and think they left the children behind, but all the women went up, and you just got a bunch of little kids left behind for three weeks without any adult supervision. No, some of the women may have gone up for this burial, but little ones is probably not the best translation, although I didn't try to come up with something else. Usually it means children, but there are passages where it's clear that it includes the women as well, those who are in a protected situation as opposed to the men who go out and take the risks in an unprotected warfare type situation. So it seems to be certainly the small children and nurses and infirm people, old people who are too old to travel, people who are sick, people who are wounded and couldn't travel, nursing mothers, those kinds of people are included in this term. 
those who were not in a position to travel. So we don't know if Bilhah and Zilpah were still alive, if they went along. Might well have, if they were still alive. Don't know. And then there was an armed escort of chariots and horsemen that went along, and it says the company was an exceedingly heavy one. Now this is a lot of people. See, it's not just a lot of people. It's all of the leadership of Egypt and all of the grown men connected to Jacob's household and the households of his sons. And that's probably several thousand people right there, and it could easily be 10,000 people making this trip if all the men in the households went. There's a lot of people. So I have to figure that this is a big event. This says company was an exceedingly heavy one. Exceedingly large would be the direct implication, but it also means it's weighty. These are the important people. This isn't riffraff showing up on the borders of Canaan. These are guys showing up in carriages and with big feather helmets or whatever else they wanted to wear. Rich garments, the heavy elders of Egypt, the important people. Then, as every commentator has said, ever since the days of the Jewish commentators in the Middle Ages and beyond, the events here anticipate the conquest of the land of Canaan. We come up across the Jordan River. If we have the Jordan River here, basically we went up to here pretty much across from Jericho, from all we can tell. And then they stayed here for seven days and had this loud lamentation, and all these Canaanites around here heard it. And then they crossed into the land and did this burial job and came back. We are looking at an anticipation of the conquest when Israel is taken up later on following Jacob. It says in verses 10 and 11, They came as far as Goran Ha'atad, the bramble threshing floor, which is across the Jordan. And there they took up a lament, an exceedingly great and heavy lament. Now that means they made a lot of noise. And they here would seem to include the Egyptians as well, because why else would they go? So everybody over there is making noise. And he held mourning for his father seven days. Looking at the other passages in the Bible that talk about mourning, they talk about fasting, whatever mourning rituals were involved or whatever went on. I've never seen anything like this. We just don't do it in our day in terms of having a loud, noisy, lamentation-type situation. It's not in our culture anymore. I don't know that it needs to be, but it wasn't theirs, and it was something the Canaanites could perceive. And if you compare this coming across the Jordan and stopping here for a few days with the book of Joshua, you'll see that they did the same thing. They camped across the Jordan. They waited for a while. They sent spies in to spy out Jericho, and the spies came back, and then they waited three more days to cross the Jordan. And while they were over there, everybody was taking a notice of what was going on. The Canaanites took notice of it as the Israelites were waiting across the Jordan. And it says, Why on earth does it say this here except to point us forward to that? Verse 11, Now when the settled folk of the land, the Canaanites, saw the morning at Bramble Threshing Floor, they said, This is such a heavy morning for Egypt, therefore its name was called the Morning of Egypt or Meadow of Egypt, which is in the country across the Jordan. Well, See, who cares? Who cares that these Canaanites saw this or that they named it? This place never comes up again. We don't know exactly where Bramble Threshing Floor is, and we don't know where the meadow or Evel of Egypt is. They're never mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. So this information is not given us to provide us a geographical clue to some later event in the Bible. And why would it be mentioned? 
Canaanites noticed. We could just as well not have that information. But I think the reason is to point us forward to the fact that the Canaanites definitely notice and tremble when Israel shows up at their doorstep 240 years later. And that's the reason why it's mentioned here. So that we start to make that connection. And we understand that where Jacob goes, his people follow. Just as where Jesus goes, his people follow. And through death, ascending into a new and better place. Well, this place is called Bramble Threshing Floor, and there seems to be some reason for that. There are two other important threshing floors in the Old Testament. Ruth came to Boaz on a threshing floor, and the temple is built on a threshing floor. And I made the point before, and it's not an unusual point to make, that the temple is a place where Yahweh and Israel are married. And the book of Ezekiel trades on that when it talks about the marriage of Yahweh and Israel and links it up to the temple. So the temple is a marriage place. But it's interesting that this is a place of mourning and death, and the temple would also be associated then with death if we associate a threshing floor with that as well. The association seems to be set up here, and I think there's probably some pregnant associations there. The temple is where all these sacrifices take place. It is a place of death. It's a place where you pass through death into a new life, and the new life is the marriage. Remember, Adam died so that he could be married to Eve. Adam went into deep sleep. And deep sleep is a Hebrew word. It's not the word sleep linked with the word deep. It's a completely different word. It's the word that is used when a person is just about to die. Just before Sisera's head is poked in by Jael, it says he was in deep sleep. When Jonah went down into the heart of the earth in the whale, he was in deep sleep. Sleep is almost death. I and mean, we can think of it as a coma, although it's not quite the same. So you come out of deep sleep, and what do you know? You've got a wife. And so the temple being associated with death, passage through death, and then marriage, that's a nice threshing floor idea. And I didn't want to let this pass without bringing that to your attention. Some reason we're told this was a threshing floor. And that much I can say about it. I can't say anything about brambles. The word Egyptian meadow, which probably is correct, avel of Egypt, that means meadow. It's a pun on the word morning. So they must have been in a, well, if this many people, they were in a nice broad area where they could all camp together. So it would be a meadow. And we have a pun. You know, if anything, coming back to a meadow as a place of mourning, in the book of Genesis, might even be a way of coming back to the garden. Not completely, but coming back at least partially there in terms of a hint that the garden where we send is a place where we mourn, and there could even be an allusion to that here, because the things that were at the beginning of Genesis are back here at the end as well. For one thing, ascending. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and down, down the mountainside into the land, And you have to come back up to get there. The land of Canaan is like the land of Eden. And coming back up to the border of it is like coming back up to the border of the Garden of Eden. And this whole being cast down and coming back up at the end of Genesis is part of the movement of the book. It only hints at the greater ascensions that are still to come. But it does show that God is going to bring His people back up into His presence, into a meadow. 
And the way into that meadow is by mourning for your sin and by facing the fact of death. And that all seems to be connected here in some vague way. Well, we just end this here in verses 12 to 14. So his sons did for him as he commanded him. Then they could stop there. Nothing else we're told is new. We don't get any more information here. His sons carried him back to the land of Canaan. Okay, we know that. They buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah. Abraham had acquired that field as a burial holding from Ephraim the Hittite in the field facing Mary. Gee, we were just told that. Then Joseph returned to Egypt. He and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father after he had buried his father. Well, why? Why such a series of stresses on the fact that they did it? Well, I think to make the point that they did it. They did obey their father's last command. We don't have any rebellion on the part of the sons here. They don't say, well, he's finally dead. We can now do what we want. No, it's quite the opposite. There is a concrete expression of faith in the fact they did what Jacob said. They took him back to the family burial plot. That expresses their faith that they will come there eventually themselves. And their obedience is a sign of their faith. If you believe what somebody says, you'll obey. Obedience is always the proof of faith. If I tell a teenager in my neighborhood, if you mow my lawn, I'll give you ten bucks. If he believes me, he'll mow my lawn and get ten bucks. Maybe that's not enough anymore. If he's my son and I say, if you don't obey my lawn, I'll spank you. If he believes me, he'll obey the lawn. He'll mow the lawn. If he doesn't believe me, he'll do what he wants. So, obedience is always the sign of whether you trust the person or not, whether you believe him. And they believe Jacob. This is a good thing. The Egyptians believe and the brothers believe. Now, next week, we'll see the ascension of Joseph. Joseph does the same thing. Joseph says, embalm me and promise to take me up when you ascend eventually. So, these notions of ascending back up are going to end the book of Genesis and we'll see that next time. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.